The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Psalm 21, written by David, the king is David here. You make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Pray with me. Father David writes of, speaks of, a word that we should take to heart. A hope of your steadfast love resting upon us and therefore we not being moved as we trust you. We need you, Father. I need you right now. My brothers and sisters here need you, Father to come and put your hand on us, to rest your steadfast love upon us and stir us to trust in you, to hold to you, that we would not be moved, filled with hope. Father, our minds, my mind, can and do run in a, a hundred different places. And even now, as we turn towards your word, there are things within us and spiritual forces without us, both from within and without, that press on us and will seek to tear us away from what you want to say. And so I pray, would you put your hand on us in love and in grace and hold us to your scriptures. Do that work in my mind and in my heart. What I struggle with a divided heart, even now, at this very moment, would you come and would you unite my mind and my heart and focus it on you? And for my brothers and sisters here, the same I ask, Father. Put your hand on us and draw us together and focus us on the scriptures and appear to us. God, by your spirit, appear to us. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your law. You, your ways, self-displayed, your love, your grace, your awesome nature, show us. Father, for those here who don't know you, would you speak to them and would you call them in? Awaken them. Commission your spirit now to run through the scriptures into our hearts and illumine them. And pray this in Christ's name and for his glory and for the good of your people, the church whom you love. Amen. From time to time, a Christian writer or speaker will express the importance of living a Godward life a life that is towards God, focused towards Him, directed towards Him. Kind of how all the members of an orchestra or a band play conductor word. If you're in a band, you're, you're looking at the notes on, on your, your music, but you're also, you've got an eye on the conductor. You're playing these things here, but you're following the conductor. When, when the conductor says to come in or, or to go out or, or how the conductor indicates you're supposed to play, you're, you're, you're living conductor word even while you're dealing with all the things right down here. And to live a Godward life is to deal with the things here with an eye on the leadership of God. We must live Godward lives. Writers and speakers will develop that sometimes and I totally agree with them. I get what they're saying. However, on the other hand, looked at it a slightly different way, to call people to live a Godward life is not all that hard because we all already do it anyway. 
Looked at in another way, in another sense, every single one of us already lives with God at the center of our lives. We're already walking through life day by day, looking at our God and determining what that God says we should do and when we should do it and how we should go about conducting ourselves. Everybody on the planet. The question is, what's your God? What is it that's operating as the functional control element towards which you're oriented. When you're living the things right here, what are you looking at that's telling you how and when to live and walk and say and speak and act? That's the question. Put it another way, everybody has something or some things that stand at the center of your life like a conductor that steers you and directs you. The challenge is to get the right God and live oriented towards him. And that's what we're going to consider this morning in the last part of Deuteronomy chapter 4. A couple weeks ago, we were in the middle of Deuteronomy chapter 4 looking at the issue of idolatry. But as you recall, over the last number of weeks, we've been looking at the first section of this book, all of it's moving us towards the giving of the law. This book of Deuteronomy, you, you may recall, it parallels common treaties of, of the day in which it was written, in which there would be a section in which the stipulations, the, the laws of a great king were given to his people, but they were all always set up with a historical backdrop. Here's how we got here. Therefore, live like this. And we've seen that over the last number of weeks, the historical backdrop, tracing a couple of key points in particular, the Exodus, how God brought them out of Egypt, and the visiting of, of the people at Horeb, the giving of the Ten Commandments there, the recounting of how it is that they came in and conquered part of the land already. And it's all leading up to chapter 5 where he's going to give the law. We've seen that structure. And our passage for today at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 4 is all of that in microcosm. It's kind of the last little step as he's been working towards this. He's going to touch again on those two great, the kind of the historical high points, Exodus and Horeb, and then move at the very end towards, one more time, towards the law. He's going to inform us in doing so. He's going to be informing us of some basic realities about Yahweh, the Lord. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible. It's going to be informing us about some basic realities about Yahweh. It's going to shape how we follow his law. That's the passage that we're going to look at today. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is the last part of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 43. And then pass back through to make sure we understand it before making a couple of observations. This begins in Deuteronomy 4:32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of the heaven to the other whether such a thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of a fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above 
and on the earth beneath there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan that the manslayer might flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in time past. He may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth and Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan and Bashan for the Manassites. That's our text for today. Verse 32 <clears throat> sets the stage as God calls his people to consider something. And he's going to spread out a, a great big vast scope for them. He's going to set a, a great big stage and call them to think about comparing him to anything else that calls itself God. In the previous section, he'd been warning them, as I said, about idolatry. And that's what flows right into this section. So let's stretch out the scope here, he says. Let, let's go across all of time. Go all, all the way back to the very beginning when God created the heaven and the earth. Go all the way back there, and let's spread it out throughout all of space. Let's go from one end of the heavens to the other. Look everywhere always and consider something. Has such a great thing like this ever happened? Now, he's, he's kind of stacking the deck, because even when he sets up the, the stage, he spreads that scope out, you go all the way back to the very beginning, and who do you find there? God. You go all the way back to the very beginning when the only one who was there was the Lord, and he made all this stuff. All the way back there, all the way to the forefront, all the way across the space, has any such thing ever happened? That is, verse 33, Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. Horeb is Deuteronomy's word for Sinai. Has it ever happened that any of you experienced what a million plus of you did all at once on that one day at Horeb? Now, history, of course, is full of people, full of people who claim that God spoke to them. Most all of them are deceivers or deceived. It's a radically different situation here, though, than contrasting the person who goes off into a cave and says God spoke to him or goes off into the woods somewhere and says he met God and God spoke to him. This is a million-plus people all at once hearing God speak to them from a flaming fire in a mountain. Picture the entire valley, everybody who lives in this whole valley, all at once seeing the Wasatch Front ablaze and all at once hearing a voice speak to them in their own language and command them. That's what happened at Horeb. Undeniable, awesome, terrifying, which is why they're shocked and still lived. If that were to happen, we would all think the next thing that happens here is that I die because this is awesome in a terrifying sense. Look across time and across space. That's never happened anywhere else ever because there isn't anybody to do it. Yahweh did that at Horeb for you on one particular day. And verse 34, this also is utterly unique. Has any God ever gone into a nation to take a people for himself out? Now, you get a little bit of historical context here. Back in that time, peoples, lands, and gods were, were all a unit. So the thinking went. If we're a people and we live in a place, we've got a God, and so that's kind of a package deal. And when nations would fight against one another, a people and, of course, their God would come and attack, and if they won, they would conquer that land, destroy those gods, and conquer those people and make them their own. But it would be very unique to think of going in and taking a, some subset out of that land, not conquering the land, not conquering the people, just letting them go, and taking a subset out. That's what happened in Egypt. The people are already in there. They're not invading, they're already there. God alone comes in, takes them out, wreaks havoc on the nation, but isn't interested in their land isn't interested in their people. He just wants a subset of people to take them and take them off to somewhere else. That's odd. 
That's unique, Moses is pointing out, God is pointing out. He reached in and took out a people, and how he did it was, again, dramatic and awesome. You see all the words piled up there with signs and wonders and great and terrifying power. Several of those terms were, were sometimes used as a compliment to some of the gods of Egypt. So to bring them up here in this context seems to be that God is saying something like, I outsigned them, I outwondered them, I outwarred them, I outpowered them, I outterrified them. I, the Lord your God, did that for you in Egypt right before your very eyes. I took you out of that in an incredible display of my godness, casting down all of those other gods of Egypt. This happened. Guys, he's saying, this happened right before your eyes. It's not a philosophical argument about a nice way to live. Action in time and space. Never repeated, never duplicated, nowhere else. I did this for you in these particular situations. I spoke out of the fire at Horeb. I got you to Horeb by making war on Egypt. You saw it. Why? Verse 35. To you it was shown. Not even just you saw it. To you it was shown so that you might know something, so that you would know that the Lord is God. The statement here is sort of like it's the proper name of the Lord and the title of God. It's sort of like saying Obama is president. Not Clinton, not Bush, not the first Bush, not Reagan. Obama is president. The Lord is God. Not Ra, not Asherah, not Baal. The Lord is God. You saw it in front of your own eyes. None like him anywhere ever. That's what the text is building up to there in 35. It builds up to that once, and then it does the same thing all over again. 32 to 35 are building up to that statement that the Lord is God, and then 36 to 39 do the very same thing again. What do you think the point is? Verse 36 is Horeb again, the voice of God from heaven and coming out of the fire on earth. 37 is the exodus from Egypt, carried out in power again, carrying them into the promised land. And the argument culminates in verse 39 with, again, know therefore today that the Lord is God, the only God, he alone. That's the same point made again. But what's the same point made again? It's, it's obviously made in some slightly different ways, and there are some nuances here. Verse 36 mentions the voice at Mount Horeb that he let them hear, that he might discipline you. Discipline. Chapter 8 uses the same word discipline to talk about how a father disciplines a son, that is, to shape him, to, to grow him, to mold him, to discipline him. God's doing something here in showing them this. He's shaping them and growing them. It's grace to the people. Verse 37, when we're talking about the Exodus, he mentions another important nuance. Which comes first, law or promise? Verse 37, clarifies something. We know what Paul says. Moses says the same thing. The law comes at Sinai. The promise precedes it. God's working with his people in, in a particular order. Promise made to Abraham. He in love chooses Abraham and his seed after him. And then to fulfill that promise goes and gets the people and takes them out of Egypt in power and then brings the law. They're his people before the law. The law doesn't make them his people. It's a critical element that we need to keep in mind as we look, because we're going to turn here eventually to chapter upon chapter upon chapter of law. And if we get the order wrong, we're going to think, oh, I follow law to become his people. No. You are his people, so you follow law. The order is important. The promise makes them the people. 
not the law. The law then comes to the people and tells them how to live. From a position then of seeing that promise precedes law, we have another little clue here. There's something else in verse, it's in verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to heart. He's got something else there. It's not just about head knowledge. It's something he's pointing to in the heart. We're going to come back to this in, in greater detail, but I want to put a little underline under that. Know it and lay it to heart. The Lord is God. And all of that together leads into verse 40. Therefore, do what? Obey the law. Therefore, be careful to keep the commandments, the statutes, all the, the things that I'm about to tell you today. It's going to lay out the law in the next chapter and then all of the various elaborations on the law follows on what God has shown them about himself, how he has disciplined them and instructed them to lay that to their hearts. Verses 41 to 43, then, are returned to some of the practical administrative issues. If they've conquered part of the land, they need to set up these cities of refuge. We'll have more to say about this in chapter 19, but I want to just comment on that. I'm not going to spend much time on that at all today. But he's, just, he's setting up a couple of cities where one could flee if one accidentally killed a neighbor to get justice. That's all I'm going to say about that today. We're going to be spending most of our time focusing on 32 to 40. And here's the main point I'm going to pull out of those verses. The main point I'm driving at today. The Lord shows himself so that you can know him, trust him, and obey him. The Lord shows himself so that you can know him and trust him and obey him. It's the main point. I'm going to basically split that in, into two different parts and make two observations. Begin with the first part about the Lord revealing himself so that we can know him and trust him. Here's how I summarize that first observation here. It, this is, and this is, if you just look at the, the text, this is by far the larger chunk of the passage here, my first observation. But it's sort of like the passage is upside down in emphasis. It's driving at the second part. It's driving at verse 40 and following, which is going to form the second observation. So we've got a big chunk of passage here in this first observation. The Lord shows himself so as to incline your heart towards him. He reveals himself. He displays himself for a purpose so as to incline your heart towards him. The passage twice cycles through this body of evidence that is shown. Verse 35, to you it was shown by God. Verse 36, he let you hear his voice. Let you see his great fire. 34, he did signs and wonders and great deeds before your eyes. This is not like a scene in the Wizard of Oz where we kind of accidentally notice what's going on behind the scenes. We accidentally see the power at work. This is very intentional. He sets up a stage, pulls up a chair, and seats us in the front row to show us something. Someone, himself. At Mount Horeb, his voice, in the Exodus, his strong arm, revealed in what he is doing with his people, right in front of your eyes. His work and his word revealed, particularly notice this, in the context of his deliverance of his people. He's showing himself in the act of bringing them out and delivering them into a land where they're going to rest with him. He made a promise, and he's keeping it right in front of their eyes. He's saying, look at me. Behold, th this one, me, I am your God, the only God. Look, right in front of you. He did it all right so that they could see it, and then he wrote it down so that we could see it. 
So we need to go to the scriptures and see God in these events. His acts of deliverance, his spoken word. But it's not just enough that we have some intellectual knowledge of this. Don't miss the point here. It is not God's goal to just switch a person from category one where I think there are many different gods over to category two where, oh, I see that there is only one God and his name is Yahweh. That's not the point. Satan gets that. Think that through. Satan understands that there are not multiple gods, there's only one, and he knows who it is. It's not sufficient that God just transfer us from that over to here so that we say, oh, I get it now. He's after more than that. He wants to shape and grow to discipline us in a particular way, verse 39, lay this to heart. Don't just, if if you can, separate your heart and your head here. Don't just know it in your head. Lay it to your heart. Don't just have some facts that you intellectually acknowledge. Trust, hope, believe, bank on, lean on, live towards. So the discipline of God is working towards, revealed in the commandment to us, lay it to heart. When someone gives a command, they reveal what they want. When a parent commands a, a child, a parent says to a child, share your toys. What, what the parent wants is sharing. Doesn't want greedy, selfish kids, wants kids to share. That's why we told them so. The command reveals the intention of the commander. When God says to his people, lay this to heart, he's revealing what I'm after in you is that this be on your heart. That's what I'm disciplining you towards. That's why I'm revealing these things to you, that it would come to you and sit on your heart. Even here in the Old Testament law, God is primarily concerned with what's going on in here. The heart. So he's concerned for a treasuring of a fact, not just a knowing it. God's discipline is after an internal heart posture, a Lord word living. A Lord word, not just God word in a generic sense, but a God that is particularly understood to be the Lord, the God of the Bible, and a heart that's turned towards him. And he's acting here to display himself to draw us after him. A month or two ago, two or three months ago, my family and I went out to enjoy some Australian cuisine at the Outback Steakhouse. And while we were all clumped around the door, waiting to be seated, who walks in but the most famous local Australian, Luke Neville, the Utah basketball star. He's from Australia. He was there with his family. I I found it kind of funny that they're all from Australia, they come to the U.S. and they go to the Outback. (laughs) They can't get away from down under, I guess. But anyway, Neville's, if you don't know Luke Neville, Neville's over seven feet tall. He's, He's huge. And he was wearing a Utah letter jacket, so he's wearing a red coat. And if you've ever been to an Outback Steakhouse, for some reason they have all of their waiting right in front of the door. So there's a, a whole big clump of us standing there. He comes in, there's nowhere to go, and so he's the doorman suddenly. He has to duck to get under the door, opening the door constantly for everybody who comes in. We were already there. He draws attention. Our kids notice him. I noticed him. I don't look up to many men, but I looked up to him. He's drawing attention, and every person who walks in, Luke gets the door for them because he's standing right in the doorway, seven feet tall, red coat. You can't miss him. Everybody for the moment is living Luke word. 
It's everybody right there. That's the kind of thing that God's doing here in this text. He's saying, look at all of this. I'm going to display myself in amazing, alarming, unavoidable ways so that you can't help but see me and can't help but know that I am God. I did some amazing things here that no one else ever does, and I did them right in front of your eyes. I'm seven feet tall in a red coat right in front of you. You can't miss me. Look. Lay it to heart. You know, though, in that restaurant that day, there were people who missed him, who didn't see Luke. There were people over there in the bar who were mesmerized by the game that was on television. There were lots of people at tables who were all wrapped up in the conversations they were having with the people they were eating with, which is fine because Luke Neville is only Luke Neville. But the problem is that in our world here, when we're dealing with the Lord, we manage to still somehow miss the seven-foot tall guy in a red jacket in the main, right in the center of the doorway. And we get wrapped up in all the other stuff that's going on in life. The people that we're interacting with, the sports events on TV. We do somehow miss the Lord. Even when he does amazing, physical, tangible things right in front of our eyes. Israel saw all this and forgot. Can you believe it? They did. Didn't take very long at all. The same generation that was in Egypt, saw the plagues, walked through the Red Sea on dry land, was stood at Horeb, said, uh-uh, we're not going into the promised land, no way. They didn't live Godward. They hadn't laid it to heart, which is why he gives us the command. Lay it to heart. Look. Trust this. Now, there are two interesting things here. It's God who's doing the disciplining. God who's doing the showing. There's God's grace at work here in revealing himself. If he didn't reveal himself, we wouldn't see him. God's doing that, and there's a command to you. Lay it to heart. Don't get wrapped up in the ball game or other people or other things in life. Both. We must strive to look at him, even while we hope and realize that he must open our eyes. He must discipline. You must look in his power. And we look especially at what? At smoking Sinai? Well, we can't see that. And if God only spoke to people today, if God only revealed himself today in those physical, tangible type of ways, he'd be bound to some geographic place. Wherever Sinai is would be the only place we could see him. Thankfully, he speaks, he shows himself in a much greater way. And think along the lines of how this text is pointing us towards that much greater way. You read through here and you begin to see words like, he loved your fathers and chose their offspring, brought you out of Egypt, out of the bondage, by his presence to give you an inheritance. This is a type of the greater deliverance where God made a promise and chose a people and acted in power to bring them out of bondage and give them an inheritance by his presence, by himself personally getting engaged in it. What is that? The cross. All of this is pointing towards, the Old Testament story of deliverance is pointing towards something. The New Testament story of deliverance. It's pointing towards the one who is the fulfillment, the end of the law, Christ. 
God reveals himself here in deliverance. He still reveals himself primarily in deliverance. That's the gospel, the cross. And it's a far better revelation than what we saw at Sinai, even what we saw in the Exodus. You see, if you look at the cross, you look at the cross, it's the clearest window through which you can see the many facets of God's nature, the glory of his wisdom in creating a way to actually deal with sin permanently, the glory of his patience in not executing me right away when I first sinned, but waiting to reckon it onto Christ, the glory of his love in choosing a people, the glory of his power. Think, what, think of the power that's at the cross, the power that actually deals with sin and actually severs its control over the human heart. You don't get that at Sinai. You don't see it there. You see a God who is terrifying and must not be monkeyed around with. And you see in the law that he gives, you see grace, but you don't know what it's pointing to. You, you only see that at the cross. He has given us something much greater to look at and lay to heart. Himself revealed in the cross. So if we ask ourselves, what is he disciplining me with? What am I to look at and lay to heart? It's the gospel centered on the cross of Christ where God delivers his people. Where he himself, his presence comes and shows his love and fulfills his promise. We must become people who gaze at the glory of God in the gospel. He's showing himself there, revealing himself right in front of us so as to discipline us, and he commands us, look, trust, hope. He reveals himself for the purpose of inclining our hearts towards him. That makes us different people when we're like that. So it begins to connect it to the second observation. God's expectation in this passage is that as the first, 32 to 39, the first seven or eight verses happen in your life, you get set up for verse 40. But therefore, the beginning of verse 40, get set up in 32 to 39. You look at him, he changes you, he makes you a different person. Your heart is inclined in a certain way. And that leads to the second observation. Seeing him then, we are to obey him in faith. We are to obey him in faith. Draw this from verse 40. And there's a, there's a coupling of some concepts here together. I'm going to lay them out as if, there, as if there's a timeline. There's something right here. We encounter a commandment, a rule, a statute, whatever you want to call it. Today, we encounter something today. And that's connected to what comes before and what comes after. So there, there are three things there. The thing before and the thing after are what help us to obey today. That's what verse 40 is teaching us. This is where this kind of becomes practical for me, and I'm, and I'm thinking through, I want to grow in my obedience today. Verse 40 points me back and points me forward. Two things that it's coupled with. Verse 40, first of all, is clearly the call to obedience. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today. He's about to reissue the Ten Commandments. Succinct expression of all the, then the, the various rules that are going to follow that. As we dive into them, we're going to talk a little more about how it is that Christians are to look at the law. But for today, it's enough to note that we're expected to be obedient people. Most of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The New Testament's full of commandments. Obedience is not optional. Obedience is expected of us, just as much as it was of them. How do we get there? 
these two things. Therefore throws us back into 32 to 39. Given 32 to 39, given what God is doing and what you have done, what's happened to you, therefore obey. It roots us in the past. There's something that's changed in us on the inside, that we have become different people, that God shines in front of our eyes. We are a Godward people. He's standing right there in front of us, just controlling what we look at and think about, what we hope in. Therefore, keep the commandments. This is abundantly clear in this text, the connection here. But I think, I can't speak for you individually, but I'll speak for us as a group. I think that when we start to talk about things like keep the commandment, I find myself kind of using foreign language amongst Christians. Not only do we not understand the coupling idea here, like how to get there, but we, we question the very thing itself. What do you mean o- obey? Keep the law, the rule, the commandment. That doesn't sound very Christian. So we're kind of puzzled by that sometimes. And so some of us, and if if this is you, I I just want to challenge you here. Some of us throw the whole concept out, and so therefore you're not going to listen to anything else that I have to say here because you've already written off, obedience is not where I live. You must. You must be concerned about obedience. If that's your attitude, repent of it. God does not give us thoughts and ideas, advice. He's God. He commands. We have to obey. So if, if you're kind of having a, kind of a, of a mental dissonance here of, I don't know that I'm really into the obedience thing, please change. Repent. Probably, though, most of us aren't there. Probably most of us, and I put myself in this category, we kind of look at obedience and we mentally agree, just struggle with it, are irregular, sometimes frustrated and disappointed that we can't seem to find victory over this particular issue. That's where the coupling idea comes in to help us. So if that's you, listen here. He sends us back, first of all. This has been helpful for me this week as I've been struggling with a particular a pattern of sin in my life. And I've realized we are not supposed to. Verse 40 is, is instructing us, do not approach obedience directly. Approach it indirectly. Or to keep this graphic here, you approach this not like this, but like this. You approach the obedience, the commandment, through something else. This has been helpful for me because as I've looked at the sin in my life, I see I I know it's sin. I want to not do that anymore. I want to be different in that regard. But it just doesn't happen. You ever been there? Something in your life you know is sin. You have, no, you have no argument on that with God. You know it's sin, but I just am not getting over this. And so what I found myself doing is, is trying to pay more attention to it and to note when it comes up in my life. And I've detected the roots. I've seen the pattern. I know when it's coming. And I just am not triumphing over it. And then I kind of like learned this all again for the very first time. Indirectly. What I'm not doing is I'm not approaching this from a Godward perspective. So the first thing that verse 40 is telling us is in the therefore is you approach the keeping of the statutes and the commandments from the perspective of God dominating your vision. You bring him into it. It's simple. But I wasn't doing it. I'm 
focusing on the, on the commandment and on the, the sin rather than on God. It's a big difference there. When I focus on God, what happens in my heart? When I focus on God, his splendor, his beauty stirs in me, begins to take over on the inside, and the attraction in the sin lessens. The, the, when I'm sinning, when I'm, when I'm looking at a sin, what I'm struggling with is, that would be good for me. And when I see God rising up in his delivering goodness, I realize, no, it actually wouldn't. Just intellectually, but something in my heart actually changes. It's a spiritual thing. It's a supernatural thing. It's not just intellectual. It's supernatural change. That's the discipline of God at work in me. You have to approach it through God, with him in front of your eyes. And the second piece, the, the other coupling that you approach it through, is in the latter part of verse 40. That it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. If the first coupling is God and his character and nature, the second coupling is promise of blessing. He says pretty clearly, keep the commandment that it may go well with you. When I'm looking directly at the sin, all that I'm thinking about is, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this. Or perhaps for you it's flipped around, I should do this, I should do this, I should do this, depending on whatever the issue is. It's it's about what I am required, what my duty is. And coming at it through the side, through the, the coupling of the blessing, starts working on a different level in you. It starts working on the level of lure. This will be really good for you. This over here is where God's bounty is poured out on you. Can you imagine what that would look like? Here he gives it to them in the language of their day. That you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Remember how in the previous section he threatened them with exile? You'll be cast off into foreign lands, scattered as a people, subjected to their rule again. Remember what it was like to be in Egypt? That's going to happen to you again. And here he says, or the opposite, that you would live long in the land, experience the blessing of God here. The point is, he lures us. Don't approach the question of obedience or sin Directly Approach it indirectly through the sides of God in his splendor and his blessings, his promises. So as I do that with my particular the sin pattern that I'm struggling with this week, what I realize is that it is strongly in my best interest to keep his commandments. The blessing part. And how could I not look at him? He's marvelous. Those two things begin to fill my mind, and the, the attraction of the sin is decreased. Its hold on me is, is weakened. Now, I'm not done with it. It's not over. But that's the disciplining process of the Lord that bit by bit by bit he grows me and changes me, and he'll do the same thing for you. His work in you, joined to your work of laying this to heart, God, and hoping in the future promise that it may go well with you and with your children after you. Seeing those two things And trusting them leads to obedience in the middle. Which is why I say, obey in faith. Obedience is really a question of belief. 
Do you believe God and his promises or not? Which do you believe? And that gets shaped in us as he shows himself to us to incline our hearts towards him, to see him, to trust him, and then obey him. May he do that in you by grace. Let me pray. Father, I'm thinking of the, not just the one pattern of, of sin that I'm struggling with in my life, but of the, the several. And then I think of the sins that my brothers and sisters here struggle with in their lives, and I'm convinced that verse 40 holds out hope for us, but not in the sense of technique that we must just follow. We need your grace. We need your grace to discipline us, to open our eyes, to incline us to believe what you say here. So that's my prayer, Father. Would you do that? Would you give us grace to turn us towards you, to show yourself to us in the gospel in particular, to show us the promise of blessing and to give us faith to believe it? Without that, we fight unarmed against sin. So help us. Help me. Help my brothers and my sisters here. Discipline us towards godliness. I pray this in Christ's name for his glory, for the growth in holiness in the church that would glorify him, for the growth and holiness in the church that would be a blessing to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.